I have called up in all my years of sorcery no god or devil ominous and gibbous and the thing was a streaming ooze of charnel the wormy corpses that he dug with his hands from unconsecrated graves it is verily known by few there were people mostly priests and women it is told whom he picked up as they fled and pulled limb from limb as a child might quarter an insect the Double, the double shadow. shadow, a Clark, Clark, Ashton, Ashton, Clark Ashton Smith podcast. Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Ralabar Vuz. I'm Phil. <laughs> I'm Raftontus. <laughs> and I'm Thesagua. <laughs> and this week, we'll be covering... The Seven Geshes, with special returning guest, Thasthagua. <laughs> hey, everybody. It's me, Thasthagua. Thasthagua, you sound like Jason Thompson. How can this be? Well, I just consumed him, and from the, knowledge, the little knowledge contained in his brain, I gathered the <laughs> rudiments of English speech. <laughs> well, welcome to the 21st century, Thasthagua. We're glad to have you on our podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Ralabar Vuz, whom you refused as a blood offering and sent off into the nether regions of the mountain. Yes, he seemed lean and ill-favored, as I recall. Well, let's find out what happened to him after he went in search of the dread and giant spider, Atlaknacha. All right, so we're continuing our coverage of the seven geishas, or geeses. I believe we decided that we would pronounce it by the actually correct um, pronunciation, geshes, rather than geeses, which gives it kind of a nice sort of animal, go into the lake kind of sound. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like make way for ducklings. <laughs> make way for geshes. <laughs> make way for ducklings, one of my favorite childhood books. Oh, I have so no true. idea what that book is. Oh my goodness, there's these ducklings and a police officer and the Central Park. What? I hereby guess you to go to the public <laughs> library and the children's book section and oh check man, out. Oh man, we should all I'll go make right it a goal now. to bring to bring Gesh into our common usage. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm gonna do it. Double Shadow listeners, we place yet another Gesh upon you. Yes, find a way to use Gesh this week. Your second yeah. Gesh. <laughs> but you fulfilled your first one by listening to this episode. Well done. We may have another guest for you, however. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. All right. All right. Okay. So he, he left Sathagua. Yes. Sathagua was like, I ain't hungry, bro. Let's see who else might want you. And sends him down deeper under the mountain. Yes. And fortunately, Raftantis keeps leading him on. Yes. Yep. As per as per Esdegor's instructions. Conspicuous instructions. So the bird leads them deeper and deeper until they come to this like vast chasm over the edge of which there's, like, a huge spider web. Atlach, Naka, however you want to say it. That sounded uh, fun. Were you, were you into that? Yeah. Atlach, Naka. <laughs> then, like a dreamer who hears some nightmare sound, he heard his own voice crying loudly, O oh, Atlach, Naka, I am the gift sent by Tatagua. The dark form ran toward him with incredible swiftness. When it came near, he saw that there was a kind of face on the squat ebon body, low down amid the several jointed legs. The face peered up with a weird expression of doubt and inquiry, and terror crawled through the veins of the bold huntsman as he met the small, crafty eyes that were circled about with hair. Thin, shrill, piercing as a sting, there spoke to him the voice of the spider god, Atlach Nacha. I am duly grateful for the gift! But, since there is no one else to bridge this chasm, 
and since eternity is required for the task, I cannot spend my time in extracting you from those curious shards of metal. However, it may be that the anti-human sorcerer Heondor, who abides beyond the gulf in his palace of primal enchantments, can somehow find a use for you. The bridge I have just now completed runs to the threshold of his abode, and your weight will serve to test the strength of my weaving. Go then, with this gash upon ye, to cross the bridge and present yourselves before Heondor, saying, Atlat Nacha has sent me. That was an amazing <laughs> spider voice. A little, a little Cobra Commander, but thank you. <laughs> no, it, it really, I, I, it really took me there. It was really upsetting. I want to point out that this makes two gods who are kind of lazy. Like, well, uh, I mean, well, he's busy. I luck notches. He's got work tonight, baby. <laughs> he's got work for all eternity. Yeah, Sasagu is like the grasshopper, and he's like the ant. Right. <laughs> Which makes me kind of wonder what his point is in spinning these webs across the chasm. Like, okay, mm-hmm. you're making webs across the chasm. Why? It's kind, of, it's kind of awesome, though, because he says, like, it, it does seem like there is a reason. Because he says no one else is going to do it, and so therefore <laughs> yeah. he has to do it. That's the best <laughs> reason. Yeah, it's, the, it's totally the best reason. I think in the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, they decided that when he finishes his bridge, the world will end. But uh, I don't, that's obviously just total... That's obviously made up, not like the rest of the story. I was going to ask my, like somewhat boring normal question at this point which is like does Atlach Naka appear in any other mythos fiction but I guess he appears in the role-playing game so that's something and in um in the Nyaroko-san anime uh he appears as a hot girl whoa <laughs> okay so that seems non-canonical but that's all right <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, there's a, there's a thing that starts to happen in the story that I think is the first time it happens here which is where these things that are under the mountain don't understand uh, what he like, is. Nor- what he is eventually, but but here, like, he doesn't understand what armor is. Right. So it calls it those those curious shards mm-hmm. of metal yeah. you're wearing, which I think is really cool. That these what things like they're just totally unaware of um, of Hyperborean human culture entirely. Yeah. Well, the farther down you get, the more disconnected from society they are. Yeah. 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 So fortunately, the web does hold his weight, and it attaches to a stairway on the other side. And as he's going over it, he looks down and beholds terrifying things, which, again, I just, I want art for this. I want some kind of huge vista and and horrible things lurking in the dark below. And the uh, the stairway is guarded by a huge snake, but the snake is like, whatevs, and and lets him in. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe because he has a gesh upon him. It's guarded by a giant snake, which I kind of pic- I don't know if this is entirely um, what he describes, but I pictured a sort of half filling the staircase like a snail in its shell because it's a really big snake, right? I, yeah, I picture it as a as a giant cobra. I wonder though about that about that that question about the gash though. Like, does it protect him as he goes deeper, or is he just super lucky? It, I think we will find out the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think it protects him to a certain degree because. As long as he has a gesh upon him, well... He's not yeah. going to cause trouble. He's got no weapons. Maybe that's also why he had mm-hmm. to drop his weapons. Yeah, he's got the gesh upon him. So, you know, the serpent dude doesn't want any trouble between Atlak Nacha and Heondor. Ha! Heondor. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, he gets past the snake and he goes down this, this staircase and enters what's called the thousand-pillared... Thousand thousand-columned palace of Heondor. 
Yeah, and the sorcerer himself sits on a five-pillared seat, far above what anybody who who could climb could, should be able to get onto, as though he had to fly down onto it, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and this guy isn't human. He is the anti-human sorcerer, Handor. Yeah. So presumably he's from some, some non-human species or proto-human species, yeah. you know, from way, way, way long ago. We don't get to see him. It just says on the seat was a figure shrouded with thick sable darkness and having over its head and features a call of grisly shadow. I really want to be able to wear that. (laughs) But he's definitely anti-human. I'm assuming that that Otlock, not whatever his name is, knows that he's not human. Yeah. Right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he also has torches burning inverse flames with cold flames. Yeah. (laughs) Again, I want art. Also, I want that for fall 2013. New line of Vogue, wearing the shadows, cloaked in darkness. He gets he gets in front of Handor, and, and Raftontis hovers ominously in front of the chair, and, and Vuz fulfills his guess and says that Alak Naka sent him. For a long time, the silence seemed intransible. There was no stirring of the high-seated figure. But Ralabar Vuz, peering at the walls, beheld their former smoothness in balls with a thousand faces, twisted in a wry like those of mad devils. The faces were thrust forward on necks that lengthened. Behind the necks, mouth-shapen shoulders and bodies emerged inch by inch from the stone, craning towards the huntsman. And beneath his feet, the very floor was now cobbled with other faces, turning and tossing restlessly, and opening ever wider their demoniacal mouths and eyes. At last, the shrouded figure spoke, and though the words were of no mortal tongue, it seemed to the listener that he comprehended them darkly. My thanks are due to Alak Naka for this ending. If I appear to hesitate, it is only because I am doubtful regarding what disposition I can make of you. My familiars who crowd the walls and floors of this chamber would devour you all too readily, but you would serve only as a morsel of it so many. On the whole, I believe the best thing I can do is to send you on to my allies, the serpent people. They are scientists of no ordinary attainment, and perhaps you might provide some special ingredient required in their chemistries. Consider then that a gash has been put upon you, and take yourself off to the caverns in which the serpent people reside. And scene. <laughs> I got chills. Um, you know, I, I want to say that I hope when Clark Ashton Smith read his own stories to people, he did all these voices. I yeah. know. <laughs> I just picture him reading them to his, like, sickly parents, though, and it's super sad. <laughs> so then, Mom, Mom, get it, get it. <laughs> I picture him reading them to his mistresses. Exactly. In yeah. bed. And then he'd, like, start talking in some, like, weird little, like, spider or demon voice, and they'd, they'd you know, they'd sort of, they'd sort of raise one eyebrow... Anyways, and then he'd smile at them with his oh, mustache and his look, and they'd be all melty again. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Hondor. There's so many cool things in this story. I like he has this like living stone around him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, what is it made of? Even people, Jason. What is it made of? Tell me. Um, <laughs> well, uh, I w- I would assume that the stone is in fact merely possessed by all the demonic familiars which Handor Handor has to help him out. I don't know if this is live. Maybe it's just you know, maybe it's just the demons manifesting through the stone. And the- and I don't know. 
They can eat because he says you're not you're not enough for them to eat. You're not going to sate yeah. them. So go hither to the serpent men. It, it reminds me of in uh, in one of the Warhammer 40k Realms of Chaos books. Yes. Or which one it's in? There's like a, yes. one of those awesome charts where you roll for like what your chaos manifestation is or something. <laughs> and there's one where like your character, your like your chaos marines, whenever they take a step, like a a carpet made of like screaming human faces oh. appears under their feet, and that's what this reminded me of. That's dreamy. I'm into it. So they go to the Snake Men. I didn't pick a reading from the Snake Men incident because it just is so amazingly wackadoodle. I didn't <laughs> even know what what to pick for a reading. So we we just need to talk through this segment. Yeah. So I, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> so these Snake Men. Um, I think that probably the best thing we could do here is to make contact with the Atlantean. Uh, the Atlantean sorcerers from the Double Shadow, and be yeah. like, guys, what's this thing about? Just putting right. that out there, because I was like, Snake Men, huh? You know who could really use some Snake Men? But this is Hyperborean times, <laughs> which were over before Poseidonus, so it's not going to work. Yeah. And the Snake Men are scientists, which I, I love. It makes me think of a video game here. Like, you're walking into a room full of <laughs> Snake Men and scientists and specimens. Um, the snake people, they're also described in, in uh, Robert E. Howard's writing, right? Or so I I've heard, so. actually. Oh, like yeah. Cult of Doom and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, yeah but I think there's like full-on half-snake people that he fights, but they're like evil, right? These guys yeah, are they like, are, yeah. they're yeah. men! Yeah, these With are... snakeheads! Yeah. <laughs> so he, he sees them, and they, I mean, they literally, if I'm not mistaken, give him a lecture on comparative biology, right? Yeah. Kind well, of, they, yeah. Use, like, they use him for a lecture on comparative biology. Yeah, they're like, yeah. this is wrong and this is wrong. They use him as a wrong. teaching tool, but then they decide that ultimately he they've, they have a great human specimen, so yeah. they don't need him. Yeah, I believe there's a line uh, where after he, they finish the lecture, they're like, this series of lectures, unlike many such, was quite brief. <laughs> I love that. I just, it's so crazy, and there's this whole thing about how they don't eat natural food anymore. Yeah, like they so they don't eat him because they don't eat anything that's like naturally occurring. No, anymore. and they have a preserved <laughs> specimen, but they also have they've dissected plenty, so they're they're set on dissection. So like, psh, yeah, we have a whole textbook on you. So do you think? To me, I put it, I put it in the notes. This is where the where the story suddenly goes from. It's been like adventurous, and then it was horrific, and then it was kind of surreal, and this is to me where it like hits the comedic. Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, like it, it's, I think so. Yeah, it's like yeah. you go through horrible things and suddenly random science bros. But I even like that they call the gesh hypnosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they don't really recognize it as yeah. a spell. They keep calling it hypnosis. Therefore, we shall put you under that highly urgent and imperative kind of hypnosis, which, in the parlance of warlockry, is known as a gesh. <laughs> yeah, but I love picture it. that was like a lisping, sibilant <laughs> serpent voice, you know. How would you? Oh, she'll put you under a highly urgent <laughs> and imperative kind of hypnosis, which in the parlance of warlockery is known as a gesh. <laughs> yes. How would you put this incident into the frame of Ralabar Vu's being, in his own mind, a highly enlightened person? There seems to be an ironic thing there, too, right? That he, he considered himself to be not superstitious right. like a man of science but he clearly has nothing compared to the snake men scientists yeah. who live in the <laughs> he's being confronted by gods and snake men 
Yeah. yeah. I don't know. He's totally checked out at this point. Like, we yeah. don't even really get... Yeah, he's not even a character. <laughs> yeah, no, he isn't. He's just... He's a vessel for us, too. And he kind of mentions it... Smith mentions it before in the story about how he's he's gone numb and it's mm-hmm. hard to even think anymore. And he's pretty much exhausted by this point. Yeah. yeah his heroic itinerary is exhausting. I love that <laughs> descriptor, his heroic itinerary. <laughs> and then he gets eaten by a ghost Tyrannosaurus. Oh but yeah, on, we didn't we didn't talk about what the gash is that that gets put on him by the by the snake man, right? No. Where do they send him? To the archetypes, which is when the story suddenly becomes like platonic in some sense. Yeah, like, yeah. It like flips from comedic into like philosophical, which then leads to a ghost tyrannosaur. It's so confusing. It's like he's going down and down into the more more and more primal things. It's basically mm-hmm. like he's going down into the past, you know, Freudian style. <laughs> but uh, it's kind of like Jules Verne's journey to the center of the earth, which Smith must have been familiar with. Because in that, yeah. you know, when they go under the earth's crust, you know, there's dinosaurs and giant mushrooms and primitive plants and stuff like that. And this is so pretty much he, he goes to that place, except that in addition to that, everything's like sort of transparent and like half material and like a phantasmal. And it's it's. It's like the ghost of the past. It's sort of like a ghost world with Thora Birch and Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps yeah. that's, you know, either either it's the world that this world was modeled off of or right. this it's just faded out of existence. But whatever happens, the ghost Tyrannosaurus cannot keep him in its yeah, stomach. Yeah, I was going to say, all, that, all that's well and good, but let's talk about the nitty-gritty of the ghost Tyrannosaurus. It tries. <laughs> it tries one, so hard. Not two times, but three times tries to eat him, and each time... He like passes through its wall because it's like stomach wall because he's it's a ghost tyrannosaurus. <laughs> Do you think they exist as real things in their own plane of matter? I think they must. Ralabarvus yeah. is just too dense for them. Or either they exist in their own things, or they're just a pure form of us, which would again that would be very platonic. Huh. They would be forms versus uh, versus concrete, smelly human things. I think it's like a cross between like a primordial history and like the idea that they're ghosts, essentially. But aren't there still dinosaurs in Hyperborea? Yeah. <laughs> so that actually makes no sense at all. So would they be like, <laughs> well, well, down here, they, just like, um, what are those? The dinos don't seem to be as quite as cool as this T-Rex. Wait, are there dinosaurs? Yeah, because yeah. remember at the beginning, they're talking about how... Well, they the have discussion. They have dinosaur leather, but we don't well, know if there's no. They're actually, they're dinosaurs they that he doesn't. Say they're not that he doesn't hunt, uh, hunt right. but they're small okay. ones. Like, yeah. let me see what. Then again, I mean, I could say every day of my life, I'm not going to hunt a dinosaur. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and they're small but noxious dinosauria <laughs> as compared to oh, T-Rex. Right. Yeah. So we think about dinosaurs; they have eras. Yeah. I'm sorry, what do. now? Eras. Eras. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm, I'm just being stupid. Like, I didn't know that there were... Er- Never mind. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I, have a real, I have a real hard time picturing what the archetypes look like because they're really vaguely described. Yeah, so he... So Vuz meets the archetypes, and they are... I'm going to read it straight from the thing. Uh, he beheld before him two entities of vaguely human outline. They were gigantic, with bodies almost globular in form, and they seemed to float rather than walk. Their features, though shadowy to the point of inchoateness, appeared to express aversion and hostility. <laughs> so they're kind of like, I, it kind of reminds me, this whole scene kind of reminds me of that old cartoon, The Herculoids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the archetypes are those two big blob people. Mm. But here's what, here's what I find, it's like a similar question that I've asked other times too, which is why are they 
it's just so confusing to figure out what the hell these things are because why are they hostile? If, like, if we're supposed to understand them to be like weird, super historical versions of like what mankind came from, right? Why does that make them explicitly hostile? Because <laughs> you know, look like, how look at how lame mankind turned out. <laughs> yeah, look how cool it started. I'd be super angry. They feel toward him like he feels toward the Vormis. Well, think about how he would treat a, a Vormis that came talking to him. He'd be like, "Yeah, hey, that's disgusting." All right, so I, I understand. I understand why they're hostile. I just think it's it's one of those things that I always wonder about when when uh, like he calls things evil or he calls them. I'm always questioning the use of, the, of those words. Well, they're what we. The one thing is for sure, they're snobs. I mean, they're snobs like like yeah. like every <laughs> yeah, which is awesome. like every single H.P. Lovecraft character, and like but and like most Clark Ashton Smith characters. But in Clark Ashton Smith stories, it's usually done ironically. They're just they're just snobs, and they look down on him because he's like. You know, because he's like all low class and, you know. We, the originals of mankind, are dismayed by the sight of a poppy so coarse and egregiously perverted from the true model. We disown you with a sorrow and indignation. Your presence here is an unwarrantable intrusion, and it is obvious that you are not to be assimilated even by our most Assyrian dinosaurs. Therefore we put you under a gesh. Depart without delay from the caverns of the archetypes and seek out the slimy gulfs in which Abhoth, father and mother of all cosmic uncleanness, eternally carries on its repugnant vision. We consider that you are fit only for Abhoth, which will perhaps mistake you for one of its own progeny and devour you in accordance with the custom which it follows. Love the voice. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, guys. Um, so here's the thing that I still don't understand. <laughs> I just think that this story has... It, it reads to me like it has some kind of informing cosmology, and I don't understand it. Like, why does the why do the archetypes think that if Abhoth, if in this cosmology which may or may not exist, if Ab Abhoth is like the Ubusathla of the story from which everything else has come, right. why do the archetypes consider it, it to be the mother and father of uncleanness? Why uncleanness? I guess all life. Why, is is it, why do they think Abhoth is bad? I guess is my question. They're snobs, you know. They're, yeah. They look down. They, they look down on Ralabar Vuz, and they also look down on their own humble roots. So you know, they think that okay. they're the best. Yeah, they're the pinnacle of evolution, right there. It's all devolution and prevolution before and after that. Prevolution, nice job. Prevolution. Did you just make up prevolution right here and right now? Yeah, I calls it like I see it. <laughs> I calls it like prevolution, devolution. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, they're total dicks. Well, I, I think mean, it's I, like, isn't it like the archetypes are kind of like good creators and Abhoth is kind of like a bad creator, like the Demiurge and whatever? Perhaps so. Maybe. I just I just find it hard. I find it hard to like figure out the, the lines of connection between all these things. And the way that the story reads, it, it like leads me to think that I should be able to parse out the the connections between these different like sectors of the cave, but I, I just I can't sort it out. There's probably um 
there's probably a lot that was cut and from the original version, the 99 guesses. And so the, <laughs> the other 92 guesses, it probably explains a lot more what's going on. I got 99 problems, but a guess ain't one. <laughs> <laughs> the second thing I wanted to ask about this is that, or just point out, is that really each of these guesses is just him being sent someplace to get eaten, yeah. right? Because they all point out, like, even this, even these guys are like, eh, our Tyrannosaurus can't even eat right. you, so we're just going to send you somewhere someplace else. <laughs> Which is really like, it's like a like a grocery delivery service, I guess, <laughs> almost, right? <laughs> it would have been more exciting if um, the old man, Estegor, had, like, made him roll around in olive oil and breadcrumbs at the beginning <laughs> of the story, and then perhaps this would have all been over quicker. It sounds um, somewhat delicious and disturbing. There's um, an awesome <laughs> picture of Abhas, which you guys have also probably seen already, which uh, was drawn by Errol Otis for the um, Deities and Demigods Dungeons and Dragons supplement in the early 80s. Uh-huh. But they identified, basically they merged Abhas and Shubnigaroth. And so it's got the name Shubnigaroth, but it's basically a drawing of Abhas. So he gets sent on his way by these archetypal d- And he runs into Abha, whom he goes to see. So we should we should talk about like what what Abhoth's region his circle of this hell is like because it is kind of it becomes like hellish right it's all hot and the air gets all thick and there's mm-hmm. evil steam yeah that leave oozy deposits on his armor yeah which is gross with every breath he inhales an odor noisome beyond imagining <laughs> which again uh, does kind of make me think of Ubosafla. Yeah, I, I kind of also wonder why this isn't why why this isn't Ubosafla. Maybe um, uh, I mean, well, perhaps Abhas is like Ubosafla stage two. I don't know what else to say about this. I'm, <laughs> out, of, a, I'm out of things. It's to say. weird. There's there's monsters like shambling about, immense myriad-tailed worms, one-legged toads, miscreated lizards. Because Abhas is just like he's kind of like Ubosafla. Yeah. Where he's but, just constantly creating things, but he's creating, like, monsters. And at this point, he's so worn out and so beyond thought, beyond horror, beyond anything, that he doesn't he doesn't really feel any proper reactions to this. There's a deadness near death on his faculties. So he's not the proud Comor- yeah, governor-ish of a Comorium anymore. He's not a hunter anymore. He's something which the archetypes would reject and send down to this horrible thing but he's so he's so numb he can't even notice yeah and the line um smith writes ralabar vuz was beyond thought beyond horror in his weariness else he would have known intolerable shame seeing as he had come to the bourne ordained for him by the archetypes as most fit and proper so this is like this is this is what he deserves he's down to the level of this horrible disgusting yeah. slime monster and it's just like the ultimate humiliation it's not it's even beyond scary it's just you know i mean hp lovecraft would write stories where like humanity is like worthless and stuff but in, in smith he really like he really digs it in digs it in and also has like the <laughs> gods actually go like ha ha you're you're so stupid and you taste bad. And then they send him, you know, <laughs> send him on. Even those ghost guys think you're a jerk. The lumpy mass there grew a member that stretched and lengthened toward Ralabar Vuz. The member divided to a flat, webby hand, soft and slimy, which touched the hunter and went over his person slowly from foot to head. Having done this, it seemed that the thing had served its use, 
for it dropped quickly away from Abhoth and wriggled into the gloom like a serpent together with the other progeny. Still waiting, Ralabar Vuz felt in his brain a sensation as of speech without words or sound, and the import rendered in human language was somewhat as follows. I, who am Abhoth, co-evil of the oldest gods, consider that the archetypes have shown a questionable taste in recommending you to me. After careful inspection, I fail to recognize you as one of my relatives or progeny, though I must admit that I was nearly deceived at first by certain biologic similarities. You are quite alien to my experience, and I do not care to endanger my digestion with untried articles of diet. Whoever you are, or whence you have come, I cannot surmise, nor can I thank the archetypes for troubling the profound and placid fertility of my existence with a problem so vexatious as the one you offer. Yet hence I adjure you. There is a bleak and drear and dreadful limbo known as the Outer World, of which I have heard dimly, and I think it may prove a suitable objective for your journeying. I settle an urgent gash upon you. Go seek this outer world with all possible expedition. Wah, 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 wah. So finally, they're <laughs> sending him home. Oh, thank goodness, right? Because nobody's going to eat him. He can just go home. Yeah. It's going to be fantastic. Wait, I want to talk about Abhoth and what he does here because it's gross. So Abhoth doesn't have eyes, right? Mm-hmm. No. So he just like sends out this progeny to grope <laughs> and then, And then the, like, the groper becomes its own thing and like scurries off into the corner. Is that, am I understanding yeah. this correctly? Yeah. Yeah, like a big floppy hand that just <laughs> wobbles away. Yeah, it just feels them up and down. And then it wiggles off into the gloom. <laughs> yeah. So he gets molested by, the, by like, the mother and father of all creation <laughs> who finds him wanting. <laughs> it's really upsetting. Yeah. And I also, uh, there's so many weird things about this passage. Like, it's kind of fascinating, this idea that you would meet a creating god and it wouldn't recognize you as something that it created. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of amazing. <laughs> But that also it would be totally unaware of the outer world. That's really, like this gets back to the thing about the armor too, right? Where where Abhoth actually has no idea what Hyperborea, what any anything outside of this cavern is like at this point. And he's just and he's heard from the archetypes, I guess, that it's pretty shitty out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know who else Abhoth has a conversation with. Maybe some of his spawn crawl out there sometimes and they're like, nope, 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 yeah, and yeah. scurry back down. Well, he seems to know that other creatures exist. So he's not like the uh, one-dimensional creature in Flatland or something like that. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, so. that's true, yeah. Now, he, after, after he leaves Abhoth, Ralabar Vuz actually takes a break. Yeah, he takes a little nap. Unfortunately, Raftontis is there to protect him because things come up to inspect him, to taste him, and Raftontis chases him away. So and Raftontis even catches him a fish for breakfast. Yeah. yeah. This, things are looking up for Vuz. Yeah. So, <laughs> and his guess is to go to the outer world. So, you know, no more being sent farther down, no more being sent to be eaten. He's just being banished back home. It's great. Yay. It's going to yeah. be the happiest Clark Ashton Smith story ever. <laughs> and Raftontis is like, yeah, dude, I'll take you by a shortcut. He doesn't actually say it, obviously, being not talking, but he flies him out through a shortcut, which is kind of exciting. So they skip the archetypes, they skip the serpent men, 
they skip Heon Dor's palace, but they have to come back to uh, the chasm that's breached only by the webs of the spider god at Lachnacha, because... Think of how much time it could have been saved if Atlachnaka had just said, hey, go see Abhoth. Because they <laughs> yeah. could have skipped all that and just went down the secret passageway. But yeah, no. but that spider guy might not even know about Abhoth. You know, it might only well, be... Yeah. It might be you only know the level above and below your own. Good yeah, point. that's true. That's true. So, but then things start to get a little rough because we establish when we meet Abhoss that Abhoss is like this pool of slime, and from it are continually radiating these slime creatures that are just going out in all directions and presumably infesting the world and, and turning it every possible time of life. But um, as you get farther away from Abhoss, the slime creatures get bigger and bigger and tougher. And this, uh, of course, we didn't encounter any of them before, but but now at this point, there's like, he's got, you know, there's less slime monsters, but the ones that are left are really badass, and they're really starting to bother him and get hungry. And one of them is crossing the bridge ahead of him, which makes him kind of nervous. And the others are chasing up behind. So, what's he going to do? Chasm. Spiderweb. Reftontis. He goes for it. He's almost home. Yep. I mean, why not go for it? So he yeah. he crosses the web. He sprints. Raftontis, with sharp admonitory cawings, floated before him above the giant web, and he was impelled to a rash haste by the imminently slavering snouts of the dark abnormalities behind. Owing to such precipitancy, he failed to notice that the web had been weakened and some of its strands torn or stretched by the weight of the sloth-like monster. Coming in view of the chasm's opposite verge, he thought only of reaching it, and redoubled his pace. But at this point the web gave way beneath him. He got wildly at the broken, dangling strands, but could not arrest his fall. With several pieces of Atlachnacha's weaving clutched in his fingers, he was precipitated into that gulf which no one had ever voluntarily tried to plumb. This, unfortunately, was a contingency that had not been provided against by the terms of the Seventh Gesh. <laughs> Whoopsie. <laughs> Nothing about reaching it alive. Or... Well, and so ends the tale of Ralabar Vu's third cousin to King Homquat and High Magistrate of Camorium. <laughs> he was so close. It's that little gleam of hope I at the know. end which makes the ending all the better. I know. Yeah, it is. It's an awesome story. Kim, you said you had a... Um, a better ending. Yeah, this, better is how, ending. this is how I would have ended it. He gets across and he gets up back into the outer world. Yay! But he's all dirty and mucky, and he's got stuff hanging off of him. And he finds his men, and they think he's a Vormis, and they kill him. Ooh, Whoa. sort of a nice. yeah. That uh, would have that would have been good. That would have fed fit in with the uh, idea that the, which I had from my misremembering right. of the story that the Vormis are kind of just yeah. shafted. Uh, the Vormis are just misunderstood too, like everybody else. But uh, do you think when he started writing this story, it was like three geshes, and then he was just like, <laughs> screw it, there's four. No, 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 wait, five. And eventually, was like, eh, seven. <laughs> I think he had the the idea, even if he might not have had the number of how the geshes would work before, and that was probably what his demon of irony kept saying. Psst. You can make this really funny, and so I love this story though. Like it has this idea that that like it, it's a story that asks 
well, like I put in my note here, like what's beyond that beyond point right. that you reach, yeah. uh, which is something that he does in a couple. Like he did it, he does it in yeah. um, City of Singing Flame, and then like the return to the Singing Flame, where it's like mm-hmm. okay, you go to this other world, and then there's like this other like weird space beyond that other world, which is just kind of like it's like a, a cool way to structure a story, and not and not something that you see I think on a lot in genre fiction. Like it tends to be you go to the beyond place, and then there's never, like, another place beyond that. Um, but I like that he's willing to he's willing to take it all the way to 7 or possibly 99 if this mythical <laughs> other version of the story really exists. You can find a draft somewhere in the Brown Library. Yeah, I love this story. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, I feel that we could talk about each, each we could talk about each guest for, for half an hour, but... um. It really boils down to the idea that there, there are things beyond, yeah, like you say, there are things beyond which human beings are meant to know, right? But it becomes a comedy just by, not because anything actually ridiculous happens per se, aside from the monsters all like talking perfectly politely, but just by sheer escalation. <laughs> it yeah, just is yeah. like, it's, it's just like a story, a good joke where it just, keep, just keeps going on and on and on and getting more complicated, but it doesn't have a punchline except, oh, he's dead, you know? Yeah. And then, <laughs> which is kind uh, of an awesome shock drop-off. Yeah, it's so well done. I was going to ask, which is your favorite Gesh? Um, gosh, you know, it's, I think Tathagua and, and uh, Abhoth are the best. I do have a fondness for the Serpent Men, but that's because I like the color green and I imagine <laughs> them being green, so... so. Uh, Ruth and Tim, what about you? What are your favorite guest speakers? I liked Atlak Nacha and Hyon Dor. Interesting. Yeah, they're, so they're the like the underdogs. Ones. Yeah, because they're just so creepy. <laughs> I, I've, I've got a soft spot in my heart for creepy things. And they're also very um, like physically well fleshed out. Like the yeah. archetypes and Abhoth are just kind of whatever bubbly nothings or shapes. I, I think I like Hyon Dor the Best. I mean, I like Sothagwa. We gotta, you know, gotta give props to Sothagwa. But the, the pillar and the familiars—that's yeah. really, really creepy. I like Esdegor the best. I, I just—he puts out the fire with blood and dust. That is pretty. I just awesome. could think about that all night long. We didn't go over any of his swearings. We mentioned. Why don't them, you read we... some of them? All right. Yeah. Where are they? Epilogue. Uh, the swearings. <laughs> the ribald blasphemies. May the order of demons admire you from heel to crown. Oh, lumbering, <laughs> bawling idiot. And then he starts talking about rules. I love him because he also says, I don't care if you're like the king of the country of dogs or something, yeah. which is an yeah. awesome thing to say to somebody. That's just, it's great. And he has Raftontis. I mean, come on, Esdegor, clearly. I can't say enough good things about this story. It's just like I'm just staring at it. and it's just, <laughs> All I can say, I'm trying to be clever to impress the story, but all I can say is like, wow, story, you're great. Yeah. And the story's like, uh-huh. Yeah, all right. I know <laughs> I am. I wasn't entirely sold on this story at first. I think it, it took reading a lot more Clark Ashton Smith for me to be able to say, yes, oh, this right. is an amazing yeah. story. But yeah, I think it, so, it helped to have the context of the, we've right. run into so many of these things in his other stories now. I think this was actually the first Hyperborea story I read because I think it's yeah. in um, Return of the Sorcerer, that like little mm. mini collection. And I didn't, I liked it the first time I read it, but I did, it took me like maybe three times to get through about the first page and a half just because I'd never read a Hyperborea story before. Right. So I was like, booze, what is this? <laughs> yeah. Like, we're made the dress? Come on now. Um, but then as soon as he got into the mountain and as soon as like it just kept going and going to seven <laughs> I, I 
signed on. So Jason, were you when you read this story, had you already been familiar with Clark Ashton Smith or was this an early one? I think this was one of the first Smith stories that I read. Um although I don't remember the exact order. Yeah. And um I mean, it's kind of got it's got a lot of smithiness, yeah. right? It's got just a severe sheer profusion of weird monsters and weird names, dinosaurs, and uh, the main character just dies at the end in just a totally arbitrary way, you know, <laughs> not even not even through a fault through like being stupid or making some mistake, no. you know. Yeah. But um, this is very like a very dark comedy, you know. Yeah, I don't think I would like it if it was straight up comedy, and I don't think I would like it if it were straight up dark. I like that the um, the further away you get from humanity, the more cartoonish things become. Yeah, kind of. Like Tim is just—he's locked in his Disney world, right? Yeah, now. true. It's all singing. It's all singing crabs and <laughs> genies voiced by well, Robin listen, Williams. Well, the first three things were scary, and then you got like nerdy serpent men, and then cartoon ghosts, and then silly putty. Yeah, I mean, you have to figure that each, if each each creature, each guest gets its own song, right? <laughs> right. And yeah. also, um, of course, Ralabar Vuz has to have a song to introduce himself, which is kind of like the Huntsman song in, in Beauty and yeah. the Beast. Oh, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking about how I wish, uh, I mean, while well, I like the movie well enough, uh, how I wish that that uh, movie, The Descent, about the female spelunkers, yeah. went mm-hmm. more in uh, Seven Gesh's direction and less <laughs> in the direction that it does go. Uh, or I mean, he could go in that direction, but then if it like went farther, and suddenly they were like meeting ancient gods and like Man, a spider. That god would be an awesome it. movie. It would be an awesome movie. It would be yeah. an awesome switch around too if you didn't show that in the trailer. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Uh, speaking of trailers. Oh, so I wrote a movie. It's called Europa Report. It will be on video on demand June twenty seventh, and in theaters August second. Some theaters, uh, not a lot of theaters. It is a movie about a journey to Jupiter's moon Europa, hence the title, The Europa Report. It stars various people who you might recognize, like that Shalto Copley guy from District 9, and Beth Davids, who I know is the woman from Army of Darkness, but apparently she's been in other things. Although I can't imagine why you'd want to see her in anything other than Army Seriously. of Darkness. Seriously. And then, I don't know, other other people like Michael Nyquist, who is in the original version of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. So anyway, yeah, it's like a sci-fi, it's like a hard sci-fi, hard-grounded sci-fi story about a journey to um, Jupiter's moon. And is there horror? And there is, I don't know if I would use the word horror because that implies certain things. There's definitely suspense. There are definitely thrills and chills. Excellent. Um, but it doesn't, a lot of people will watch the trailer and they will say, Oh, I didn't see this movie when it was called Apollo 18. I don't want to see it now. And I will just go ahead and say that our movie is way better than Apollo 18. There are no moon rocks that are actually spider monsters. Everything is very on the level, scientifically speaking. Well, we probably get a B for our science, I would say, all told. But I think most science fiction movies would get an F. So uh, I think we do okay. So you're a writer. Awesome. I mean, I, I knew that you've also written graphic novels and another film but you know, i'm really excited for this for this movie and i hope i do get to find it in the theater yeah i hope if you like my ridiculous voice on the podcast check it out like i say vod june 27th and then in some theaters august 2nd and you can watch the trailer online just google well, europa report trailer. i'll put it in the in the show notes excellent i guess that's all i have to say about that well do we have anything else to say about the guest shows oh man i've I love the story. It was a pleasure uh, rolling around in it with yeah. you. Um, I, you know, I wish we could roll around in it longer. And uh, yeah, it would make a great comic. I've often thought, but I have not done that comic yet. So, you should uh, do that comic. Yeah. 
I should. I on should. top of the know. 17 other things that you're doing. Make the 99 guesses. Hey, Jason Thompson. Oh, please make the 99 guesses. Okay, hold on, hold on. Rewind. Everybody rewind in your minds. Rewind, rewind, okay. rewind. What were you saying at the beginning of the last podcast that you were doing a thousand-page comic about something? Yeah, I'm doing so a... Why um... aren't... Hold on. That's not my question. <laughs> <laughs> my question is, why aren't you doing a thousand-page version of the 99 guesses? <laughs> well, that you know, it's, it, we're going to do the Kickstarter campaign, yes. right? And it's a stretch goal. We'll keep adding more guesses. <laughs> I like you know, it. Like, oh my I god, that's it. the best it's idea the I've ever heard. Never-ending Kickstarter. But I am I am excited about the actual comics you're doing. I was just giving you a hard time. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> it's good. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, and thanks for having me on for my favorite Clark Aston yeah, Smith story. Yeah, no, the pleasure is ours. Well, guys, um, you all kick ass, and it's a pleasure talking about Clark Aston Smith with you. You as well. And it's going to be a pleasure watching your movie when it comes out. Oh, yeah. I hope you like it. If you don't like it, you can tell me. <laughs> I will accept the criticism. <laughs> Next time, we're going to be doing The Coming of the White Worm, a Clark Ashton Smith porno. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> and that's all, folks. Bye. Good night. And this week, we'll be covering the seven guillaches with seven special returning... What the hell? Never mind. Hold on. (laughs) Jason's still here.